0: This podcast is brought to you by the Turquoise Trail Charter School, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Oh, you guys, it's tricky. Because as much mm. as like I want the kiddos to come in, I do, I do, I do. It's like okay, trying to figure all this out. And I'm hoping that it'll just become like second nature in some sense. But it's just, oh. <laughs> The first and I- four weeks they're going to be like, put your mask on, put your mask on, put your mask on, it's not on your nose. Wipe <laughs> down the
1: bathroom. <laughs> From Protect the Pack Productions at the Turquoise Trail Charter School in Santa Fe, New Mexico, my name is Chris Eide, and this is The Hypothesis, a show about what it's like behind closed doors making decisions about whether or not to open up school in the middle of a global pandemic. Autumn in northern New Mexico is particularly beautiful. One of the most outstanding plants that comes into bloom in the autumn each year is the rubber rabbit brush, also known as the gray rabbit brush or more locally referred to as the chamisa. The chamisa is a bush that flowers brilliant yellow colors every fall. And around that time, people start to sneeze. People start to feel ill. People believe that the chemisa, the rubber rabbit brush, is the cause for allergies. And in reality, it's a number of other plants that bloom around the same time. However, the chamisa is commonly viewed as the culprit. This year, this week actually, when the chamisas bloomed, we had a lot of kids out of our childcare. Typically, we have 30 kids in the building. Each day, in childcare, spaced much more than six feet apart, all working at their stations on their computers, participating in class virtually, but they're here for food, they're here for internet, they're here because their parents might be essential workers. 16 of them were missing on Monday and about the same on Tuesday. And we chalked it up to allergies. We chalked it up to the chamisa, But we really don't know. We don't know what's going on because even though in a normal year, kids might have allergies and they might come to school with the allergies and they might sneeze and then it will soon pass. This year, there are different questions that we have to answer. What's really happening with those 16 kids? So we asked them this week, you missed Monday, you missed Tuesday, please don't come back up to school until your conditions change. Now this is right at the crux of what I refer to as the virus, actual and perceived, because when we're making decisions for uh, the school in terms of whether to open or not, a lot of it is now really not straightforward. We have to make some assumptions. Now, if I assume that those students all are out because they have COVID, that is an entirely different set of protocols that we need to engage in than, ah, a bunch of kids are home with allergies. They're not feeling great. So we are currently in the middle of this decision-making process, but the process itself for decision making around actual versus perceived is a much bigger one and goes back to the very beginning of the summer when we started to try to manage our plans you see whether families believe that the school is safe depends on their beliefs about the virus what we're hearing about the virus and no one here is going to doubt that the virus is dangerous and nobody here is going to play fast and loose with their ideas we have to plan for the worst case scenario full stop well almost full stop because whether we can set up plans here at the school and manage all of the all of the epidemiology that we can and all of the health and safety Uh, precautions in our operations that we can here, what becomes more challenging perhaps to manage is whether people in our community believe that we are safe or that it's possible for us to be safe. I want to introduce you to Danielle Garcia, because if we're going back into the beginning of the summer, back to when we were in charge of devising our own safety and operations plan, it was Danielle Who was the architect i couldn't have chosen a better person to design such a plan danielle went to the state's most prestigious engineering school she's intensely vigilant and this plan is not just work it's personal for her she's also our director of operations so i'll let her tell you about what it was like back in the beginning
0: when we first started it there was so many uncertainties it was we didn't have the direction we had, that we have now from PED.
1: Quick side note, the PED is our public education department.
0: Whether we agree with what PED is sending out or not, we didn't have that direction, we were making everything up from scratch, just focus what we knew. So I was going and reading, this is just to me, it was almost it's comical because I was going and reading the CDC guidelines, well, no, Department of Health, and then I'd go to CDC, because they'd refer you there, and then that would branch off into five more ETA and OSHA documents. And I'm reading this and at one point I said, is anybody going to care about this minute thing? And I said, yes, I care because I'm going to have to go back to work and I'm going to be scared. So I kept using my own fears. And then I kind of had to reel back because I live with a hypochondriac and a germaphobe and I said, oh, no, mine are really just perceived because they're not real, you know, <laughs> not living. But, that being said i knew that there was a balance in the middle i looked at our staff and i said how is our staff going to buy into this it's all about how we present it if we are organized and we can address everything and even if the answer is we've looked into it and we're still uncertain but we know these things that's an answer that people can get behind so that's what i tried to do
1: so back at the end of june and into early july we had devised a plan that we believed would keep everybody as safe as humanly possible at our school site. The other piece was the teachers. How many teachers could we reasonably expect to have up at the school on any given day teaching our kids? And moreover, how many kids could we actually fit into a classroom? Those two things would end up dictating our ability to actually serve our kids in person. But again, that's just one part of it. How do we convince parents, how do we convince teachers, how do we convince kids that it's actually safe to be up here at our school, especially when they might be going other places around town that aren't as safe, but have become a part of daily life in a way that makes it somehow acceptable, that makes school a place that you haven't been to since March somehow feel other or even potentially dangerous. Again, here's Danielle Garcia.
0: I can tell you that I've been to the grocery store. They don't take my temperature. They don't scan. They don't have, you know, a whole admin monitoring thing. You're going to be lucky if you can find out that there's an outbreak at that store and that you get informed. Here, we are on track so that you have the safest place possible.
1: But again, all of those things might not matter if people don't believe that the school itself is safe. So getting back to what we talked about before, all of the students who were out from our childcare, what's happening to them? Do we treat this as an allergy? Do we treat this as if it's COVID? If I let everybody in the school community know that 16 kids are out and we think that they might be infected with the virus, that sends a message out into the world that maybe our school isn't safe. And if it is the case, as it very likely is, that these students are out because they're not feeling well, because of allergies, because of the chamisa and its related plants that bloom at the same time, then we've just put out another virus, a perceived virus, into the space, one which, which is dangerous in its own way. Because if kids and parents are afraid to come to school, then what have we done? You see, there are protocols that schools must now go by in the event that someone does turn up a positive case. But there are no protocols for what you need to do leading up to that. No protocols that will help you determine how to protect much more than just the safety and health of the individuals who come up to the school building. Because at its very core, all we are doing is living out a social contract with one another. Danielle Garcia.
0: But listening, I honestly have listened a lot to our governor and just the people piece of what she has to say and taken that to heart. This is a social contract. It's about me caring about you and your family, and you have to care about me and my family.
1: No matter what guidelines, regulations, or statute we're all playing by, that is the bottom line. Next week on The Hypothesis, the math of a classroom, and how you determine exactly how many students can safely fit in one room one wing, one entire building. I hope that you stay with us. Stay safe. We'll see you next week. A special thanks this week to Danielle Garcia for her contributions. Some of the voices you hear in the intro are from Melissa Martinez and Giuseppe Miller. Special thanks for sound advice to David Hillendahl, And for sage advice and guidance to Latif Nasser from Radio Lab. Have a great week.